welcome to the Veranda Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Christine Mills. On the Veranda Entrepreneur Podcast, I feature entrepreneurs while I discuss ways you can grow your business today. Step onto the veranda, get a cup of tea, get comfortable, and let's talk shop. Let's do this. Welcome to the Veranda Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Christine Mills. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Tracy Frost-Brensky of City Babes. Tracy is a co-founder of City Babes, a downtown New York family membership club with the preschool and enrichment options for children ages two months to five years old. Tracy is going to share with us her journey of opening City Babes, growing it into a strong community, and subsequently um, exiting the business after nearly 20 years. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited about this interview. As I said to you before, I was a fan of City Babes from like 2005. Loved the concept of what you were doing. I know it was referred to to the Soho House. Like it was just very like you did it well. And today we just really want to talk about what that journey was like. And but before we go into that, I would definitely like to start with the younger version of Tracy. What were you like as a child? Well, that's, that's funny because I feel like in in many of the times I've been interviewed or talked about this whole journey, that's certainly something that I haven't been asked, so, but I do think it's a big part of the equation. Um, well, first of all, you might hear I grew up in Australia, so um, I was one of four, the third of four of two boys, two girls growing up in Australia in the 70s, um, and uh, my parents uh, actually got divorced but did try, we went back and forth a couple of times, so there was, in within that process was a lot of independence. Um, you know, we, although we were four kids, we always joked that it was, you know, in our household, it was kind of survival of the fittest. We were raised very, very independent to take care of ourselves, which, you know, at the time, and, you know, looking back on it and certainly comparing to how people raise, you know, how, how we are all raising our kids now, it was quite different. But I do think that it played a big part in this, um, you know, this sense of, you know, being able to do things on my own. Um, I very much was responsible for all my, you know, my own schoolwork and, you know, applying to college and going to college and all of those things were, were things that I was, you know, I was responsible for. And I think that that played a big part in what took, what started my journey and certainly my career journey um, for me. So I, um, you know, I was, a, I was a good student. I was with a, I, I went to an all-girls school that actually that ended up, the accountant invested the money and they brought boys in. But what was great was that it was originally an all-girls school. So there was this really okay. strong female um, sense in, in, a, in a co-ed school. Um, you know, some of the time when the boys came in, you know, they we were already in charge. And by the time I left school, it was 50-50. And it was a very big uh, grammar school in Australia. Um, and again, you know, having, having my kids grow up in New York City, I really do look at it and think what incredible opportunity my high school years were. Really, really strong. My headmaster played a big role in all of our lives, taught us to sort of reach for the stars. And um, our school motto um, was called "Let Your Light Shine." Was, was "Let Your Light Shine," and it's so interesting mm. because even now I think about it. I think about it and say that to my kids. There was sort of this sense of you know go out there and you know do what do what you were made to do. So I, I definitely came out of school super confident. 
kind of fearless. Um, you know, and I was, you know, 50 years old now, so by no means was it, you know, as easy as it is now for women to, to sort of really believe in themselves. But for some reason, the way all of me and my girlfriends came out, you know, we all just believed we could do anything. Um, so I started off in finance. Um, I actually started off um, on, a, on a trading, on a, on a futures trading floor. So sort of a little bit like trading places, um, you know, like a, right. like a stock exchange floor, but we were trading bonds and commodities. So crazy environment, you know, 500 people, 10 women screaming. And oh I look gosh. back on it and I've, seen, I've got pictures of it and it's just, it, it, I wasn't afraid, you know, and it, it's very, very interesting. I, I knew I was good at what I did. Without a doubt, actually, there was definitely, there was a sense of having to prove yourself but once you did, you almost got remembered more because you were a female. So I yeah. sort of took advantage of that. I took my job very, very seriously, probably too seriously, um, you know, in hindsight as a 20-year-old. <laughs> um, but, you know, I came out and I, and I really, took, really was good at it and that paid off. And so I ended up getting promoted and I was working at um, an investment bank in Australia you know, within a period of time called Macquarie Bank, which as we've talked about, right, because you know of them. Um, but, you know, that they, they were really a super successful, super entrepreneurial, um, small investment bank, a little bit like, uh, you know, a, small, a smaller version of Goldman Sachs. And um, and I ended up doing a master's program, a master's in finance that, that was paid for by them. Oh, and nice. I also was covering um, North American mining companies doing all their commodities hedging was where I ended up originally in bonds and derivatives and moved around and they ended up in commodities. And then Macquarie, for some very interesting reason, closed their office that they had in Denver. And when they closed it, they offered me the role of um, taking over the clients uh, out of North America. And that was, you know, a huge opportunity for me because then I had North American clients and within a year, um, where my colleague had left Macquarie to go and work at Chase in New York, he hired me to come and work with him. So I flew to New York. And at the time, it was interesting because um, my mother had, within four years, had just taken an opportunity. My parents were divorced and my, all of us were grown. My mother took an opportunity to work in New York as well. So it was this beautiful oh. moment where I followed her over. Um, she was actually living in Connecticut as originally in New York, but then she moved in Connecticut and married my stepfather. But um, I, I, I moved to New York and she was here as well, which is amazing. And she's still here, which is, and has lived here as long as I have. So the two of us live here and the rest of my siblings um, are in Australia and, and my father lived in Australia until he passed away about five years ago. So it was this really interesting journey that brought me here. And so then I stayed in finance for about 15 years, again, doing commodity derivatives the whole time, mostly in gold and precious metals, and left that in 2004 um, prior to having kids, prior to being married, to start City Red. So it, that was certainly a huge um, pivot into <laughs> something yeah. quite different. So that's sort of a so little bit of a journey. Prior to... So you started City Babies before you had children? Yeah. So this is what's oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, so my original business partner was actually um, one of my colleagues. At, I, I moved from Chase to Deutsche Bank, and 
um, she was Spanish and had just had a baby. And we were both a derivative. Uh, we were, you know, even back then, 2000 and 2000, was we open 2005? It was probably sort of toward the end of 2003. Um, we, the derivative market was changing. Um, it was, you know, a few things that happened that sort of made them a little bit into a, you know, into a, into a dirty word. For Bitcoin commodities, it was, it was Enron, which probably a lot of people don't even know that there was this scandal over derivatives in Enron. And so people just sort of went through waves of, I suppose it's a, it reminds me a little bit of what people go in and out of um, right now of, you know, um, Bitcoin. You know, there's all stories and everyone loves it and they hate it. I feel like we're in that right. point point with, with um you know, with new types of technology and trading. So there wasn't a lot going on. And as soon as, for both of us, as soon as sort of derivatives were taking out, taken out of the equation and we were doing so what we would call, you know, just pure cash trading, it just became less interesting. There was less value add. And we're both getting to a stage where we sort of, and it's interesting now because I think about it a lot when it comes to, um, you know, I'm, I'm such a strong feminist now, and without a doubt, I think if I had had a mentor, a role model, I would have stayed. Um, but, you know, then the journey wouldn't have created Citibaz, but I do look back on it, and both of us were in really, really senior positions and just felt disillusioned. So, anyway, she had a baby. My sister was a midwife. My sister-in-law was a child psychologist. Quite a few of my friends, not only in Australia but around the world, had started having kids. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, how, would, how will I do this? How am I going to do this in New York City? And so we were sort of intrigued and we were looking at different business ideas and we had this one real theme um, was we wanted to come up with something that we thought a man wouldn't come up with, you know, because we felt like there were certain opportunities in business where a woman's brain is just going to say, no, this is the way things need to be, and therefore there was an opportunity that in, in that. So we were looking at all sorts of different things, and so we started, um, we were both were members of Soho House, and so I suppose we looked at the Soho House model and thought, well, isn't this interesting? People are going to pay a lot of money to join something so they can drink with people that they <laughs> feel are part of their community. My goodness, wouldn't you want to do that with raising your kids? You know, wouldn't you want to create a safe space in the city and so we started looking at places around the city and we did a, we had an enormous amount of lead time. So we, we just did research, which is something, you know, again, you know, it, it was a luxury to have that amount of time. But, and obviously if people come up with business ideas, often they don't have that. But we did and we just did a lot of research. We spoke to a lot of people and we just saw immediately how underserved it was. And I think for me, not being a mother actually I found I was horrified. I was horrified that the places I could go to get my nails done were nicer than places that people would go with their kids. Um, now, of course, this is 2005 and the world has changed drastically. So, for anyone who has had kids that are, you know, in, you know, between 15 and 20, they know what we were talking about. New York City was super right. underserviced and they were in, you know, basements and old church things and, you know, they just weren't, weren't anywhere near the sort of caliber of what, what you'd come to expect in New York City. So anyway, what ended up happening was, though, that we ended up bringing in a third business partner and then my original business partner uh, decided she didn't want to move forward with it. Um, and so I ended up doing the business, uh, the original founding with um, with my New York-based business partner who was an ex-school teacher. 
So it ended up being oh, okay. a good fit from a PR standpoint as well, like you know, finance person, school teacher. Um, but then it ended up within, so we opened in 2005, she ended up uh, leaving in 2008 for all sorts of different personal reasons. So I ended up running it on my own for the majority of the business. So, um, in, you know, when you look back on it, it seems so funny that we started off almost with three and there was only one in the end. But, you know, the whole, the discussion of business partners and founding businesses together is a, would be a very interesting business podcast and I've talked to so many different people who've started it and founded it and when the founder steps away, when you find a CEO, really is interesting because there are different roles to be played in the early stages, in the raising of the money, in the, you know, it was really probably the fact that I had, you know, really had had a lot of years under my belt of, you know, working really hard that made it easier for me to take on that role, you know, of the CEO and the founder really that took the business on for that that 12 years because it was it definitely was not an easy task yeah i mean that sounds like a lot of pivots um especially losing a couple of business partners Mm. and still stepping in to like another role as like the founder as well as the operating manager as well as raising funds what was what was it like in the early years for you um, having to deal with all of that coming at you, especially if you didn't have that background? Well, so I tell you what, well, I, I should mention that by the time we opened, which was 2005, uh, we opened in November, my daughter was born in April and I did get married in 2004. So a lot of things, by the time we opened, I had a child, which I think, which I do think helped um, me to, Understand. I always used to say I, I was the living demographic. I was particularly the fact that I'd worked in finance and really didn't have, you know, a lot of girlfriends in the city. I, yeah. I was super isolated as a as a new mom, and really many many of my, I would say the majority of my friends that I have right now, are people that I met at Citibase. So, you know, I was living, breathing, you know, the demographic that we were targeting. Um, so in the beginning, I have to say it was very, very hard. Um, what what helped um, motivate me was that I thought we were always doing something that I thought was making a difference because uh, I knew it was making a difference in my life. But I also, you know, once I became a part of the community, I knew I knew that it was changing. You know, the way people were experiencing such an important part of their life. I think I might have said this to you on the phone, but prior to this this uh, podcast, but you know, I always used to say to the, my colleagues and people that were doing it every day, it's like we're not selling t-shirts, you know, we're we're, we're really doing something important, and right. it, you know, profitability for us was obviously super important, but we really uh, the people I had a couple of people that worked with me the whole time. I was lucky enough to have a couple of people that did that, and then I also had some people that, you know, cared as much as I did about what we were doing. So, you know, there was such a motivation in trying to do the best we could and realising that, you know, we were we were having taking care, you know, parents were there as well, but, you know, we were taking care of people's children and, and right. it just, it was such, there's something to be said. And again, you know, we weren't a charity, but sometimes we felt like we were, but, um, <laughs> we, you know, we felt, there was this sense, and I can understand what it must be like to really do something. Um, you know, I really get that sort of higher power that people must get when they're 
when they're doing changing, really changing people's lives, whether it be medicine. I was actually sadly at the um, at a hospital yesterday visiting my mother-in-law and my my 16-year-old daughter who had wanted to be a doctor came out because it was pretty harrowing, and she said, "I couldn't be a doctor." And I said, "Yeah, but you know what you experienced today was was experiencing your grandmother in that scenario." I said, "But if you're the doctor taking care of that grandmother." you're able to make her pain go away or yeah. cut her cancer out or, you know, you're, you're in a different role. So I think that was, that made me think of Sudebeds in the sense of, you know, we were really, every day we were trying to enrich these people's lives, whether it be the mothers by creating a parenting group, by creating, you know, a, a parenting talk, by, you know, the, you know, we had all sorts of online uh, platform. You know, every day we were just trying to, to do our best and I think there was something really rewarding in that but I learned a lot (laughs) very quickly to to answer that other part of the question I definitely learned a lot and I because I wasn't an expert I was so happy to consistently ask people for you know I would I would email anyone anytime reach out to anyone anytime that's kind of why I'm very happy to do the same for other people which is what I'm doing now you know, consulting to to do to give back sort of what a lot of people gave to me. Yeah, and you guys were successful in building a community in City Babes that you know you said that you even have your friends are mostly from City Babes. How were yeah. you able to cultivate that tight knit community? So I, cause I think it goes back a little bit, you know, to what I we were very authentic and genuine in what we were doing, and I think even if what we did on one particular day, whether it be a class, as I said, whether it be a workshop, whether it be something, that people knew that there was a there was a sense of um, trying to. It, we we used to in the end say that we were an you know an original club, but we were just trying to enrich their experience. That those incredibly important years in the early stage, and it really doesn't matter whether it's your first child or your fifth child. You know, you just, as a mother, as a parent, you wanting to to do the best you can. And I think we were right. along for that journey with, with everyone. So um, within that, just create, there was an enormous amount of loyalty that was created with our, fam- with our members and families and children and even now, and, and the staff too. I mean, I actually just caught up with uh, two of my ex, colleagues you know some of the thing the girl that I worked with was sort of like my really like business partners to me and they're still in contact with so many people and you know it it created these really wonderful relationships um so as I said it was very hard um day to day without a doubt you know you never knew what was going to come out you good or bad honestly there were lots of really exciting opportunities that came at us but you know there was a lot of challenges that came at us we read just having a 10,000 square foot facility in New York City alone is, is pretty hard. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but in that, you know, every I don't think we could have done it if we were just selling t-shirts. If you know what I mean. So there was that sort of um, that sense of flow that we were doing what we loved and what we felt was changing, you know, people's experience of these early stages of their life, whether it be the kids, the parents, the grandmothers, the teachers. You know, everyone was getting something out of it. Yeah. And, you know, um, as we close off on the interview, um, what advice would you give to other individuals 
who may have may be in that similar situation where they're pivoting uh, throughout the course of their business, or they may have to close the business. What advice can you give to anyone who is listening? That's such a good question. Um, uh, Without a doubt, when I close a business, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, But I will say um, we didn't have a choice. Uh, It was really a real estate estate play that caused it. I think what made it easier was that we did everything we could. It was mm-hmm. uh, that we had put, you know, that we there wasn't a there wasn't a sense of us giving up on something that we loved. There was a sense of it must this this, is, this must be the time. You know, we had we had been open for a long time. Um, I was super focused on making sure that you know I'm incredibly grateful it didn't happen two years later because of COVID, but we make sure that staff, all our staff found jobs, all of our children uh, found, uh, were placed in other schools because we had a preschool program. Um, mm-hmm. And just trying to do the right thing. I think that's actually something that I would say that I kind of kept as a mantra throughout the whole process because there are things that don't go your way without a doubt and there's nothing you can do about it. That's something that... Um, especially when you're in a small business, you just don't have the infrastructure sometimes to make yeah. things happen. You know, having come from a big bank where there's so much infrastructure. So you just have to let things go that, you know, and have to be very sort of philosophical about it. Um, without a doubt, I did that. We did that. But then also we just made sure we did the right thing. And yeah. so there really wasn't anything that we felt um was the stone that had been unturned that people could turn around and say, you know, can you believe that Citibank did this or that or whatever? We just we just did the right thing. And it didn't mean it wasn't sad, didn't mean it wasn't hard, didn't mean, um, you know, we weren't frustrated by the outcome. But we, um, that we, you know, that that's probably, for the tough decisions in business, I think that's something that I would advise people to do. Um, and, you know, just to do, and just, I, I definitely tried every single thing I could think of, and as I said, re- went back to that that program of reaching out to as many people as I could, and you know, not feeling any shame or around it. I would, you know, I was attempting to try and merge the business in the last, you know, last three months with other companies, just to see if we could keep the, you know, keep my staff alive, keep the some of so many of the initiatives that we were super excited about that we were working on. But in the end we couldn't and so we just sort of had to feel good that we'd done everything we could. Yeah. And and give yourself grace that you yeah. were able to do accomplish what you set out to do. I mean there's a lot to be proud of. Um yeah. and you've learned a lot and you were able yeah. to really help a lot of families during a very tough time, I think very tough time in parenting that yeah. Um, you know, birth to five period, it's a lot. And yeah, to be part of a community. It's a, yeah. It's an intense, dynamic time, you know. So much is changing in your life, in your child's life. It's incredible. Um, the other thing that I, you know, because hindsight helps to look back on it now, and, you know, um, but I, I'm taking sort of some of the learning lessons, the good and the bad ones, and sort of really looking at them now and thinking, oh, I want to, I want to pass them on, you know. So yeah. what I'm thinking about 
I'm predominantly advising women in, in business and, um, you know, I really do think about some of the things that came at us unexpectedly and thinking, okay, that's a lesson learned. How can I, how can I pass that on? Yeah. So um, if people want to get in touch with you and they will like to use your service, how can they go about doing that? So right now I'm in the process of actually doing my website. So there is no website. Okay. Um, my probably um, I'm on LinkedIn, which is Tracy T R A C E Y Frost Rensky. Um, and I'm also on that same email, Tracy Frost Rensky at gmail dot com. Nice. And now we're going into the rapid fire questions. This is. <laughs> Right. A fun way for people to know a little bit about you, and um, it's going to be fun, okay? So the first question Great. is favorite dessert. Oh, my gosh, I love this question. So I do love <laughs> chocolate, but chocolate isn't a part of this favorite dessert. My favorite dessert is an Australian, although in any Aussies or New Zealanders are listening with screaming, is it's actually kiwi originally. So it's originally a New Zealand dessert. The Aussies have kind of taken hold of it. It's called pavlova, and it's a it's a meringue that you put sweetened cream and fruit on. It's absolutely delicious. Oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds really yeah. good. Um, what do you love the most about living in New York City? Mm, that's another good question. I'm a huge runner, so oh, um, nice. you know, there's many things that I love, but I've said I really like to run around New York City. I like that it, in that sense. I do quite like that it's flat, and so you can. Really, you know, I run. I've run the marathon a couple of times, and I Good. run up long, my long runs. I run on the West Side Highway up to One Twenty Fifth Street, and I love it. It's different all the way, and there's so many people to look at and things to look at, and there's a lot of runners. So I like that. That's one of the things I like about it. Yeah. Nice. Um, your favorite vacation. Oh, my goodness. I love to vacation because as a true Australian, I love to travel. Um, it's really interesting. I would have to, like, go 50-50 between hiking and skiing. So clearly I like to move, um, but I, do, I would probably lean towards hiking. I really love just to be outside and moving. And there's something about being with friends, walking and hiking. And I, I did it for one of my friends' 50th birthday We we hiked from Aspen to Crested Butte, and it was just one oh, of the best, best things to do. That's amazing. Favorite book? Oh, my goodness, so many. Um, okay, well, again, I'm going to go with something that I just read. Um, I just read uh, Richard Power's Overstory, which is this incredible book about so many different things, but it's mostly about trees and how they communicate and but it's also got a whole lot of it's I think he I think he won a Pulitzer Prize for that book, but he's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. But I'm also right now just reading Brene Brown's most latest book, which I'm just blanking on what it's called. It's called Atlas of the Heart and that's incredible as well. Nice. And, and one more. Your... Can I give you one more? Just yeah, yeah, it's an, sure. Aussie, it's an Aussie book and it's so beautiful. It's called All Our Shimmering Skies. Uh, by Tim, uh, oh my goodness, see, I've got a little bit of a mental block on what his last name is. It's Dalton. Oh, yeah, Trent Dalton. Amazing story about Australia if you ever want to read like, all our shimmering skies. 
Nice. Okay. And what is your superpower? Oh, that's a good one. Probably, um, probably being calm under pressure. Hmm. That's a very good superpower to have. Yeah. It's funny. I noticed it yesterday with uh, dealing with illness in our family and, you know, that sort of ability to take just a breathe and center and get grounded when there's quite a lot of chaos around. Yeah. And the last question is, if you can spend an afternoon on a veranda with anyone, living or deceased, who would it be? Oh, my God. It's so funny because I actually always think when I listen to these questions, it must be so hard. But it's just like <laughs> this immediate response comes into your head. So yeah. <laughs> without a doubt, um, I would pick um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I just am so inspired by her. I Who's that? I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth, uh, the, um, oh, yeah, the judge. Supreme Court. Yes. Yeah. I love her. But then I would also probably say Michelle Obama because I adore her as well. I actually was lucky enough to go to a fundraiser once and sat with her at lunch. And if you have an expectation, it's a hundred times more inspiring. Oh, wow. She's incredible. Oh, that's amazing. I, I took my daughters to see her coming as well, and that was pretty impressive. So it would be between those two amazing women. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for joining us today. I really appreciate you coming so on the fun. show and sharing the story of City Babe. Well, and I'm excited so much for reaching out. For you. Yeah. I can't right. wait to hear this and to continue to listen to your amazing podcast.